0: In any event, I want to continue briefly our lesson that we started last week. I don't want to beat this to death, and we're still only going to be touching on a few basic issues. I'm not going to get involved too much in the political debate about abortion. I don't buy into this separation of politics and religion, and that's mostly because politics today infringes upon religion. It's because they try to talk about things that I believe are moral issues, and I'm going to feel free to speak about moral issues from the Bible, what the Bible says, whether it's convenient or not to people, that's that's the way it is, I think you should be the same way. So yes, abortion is a political issue, but it's also a moral issue, an issue that concerns Christians, and uh, I'm going to talk with you about that worldview today, a little bit about why uh, why we should think what we do, and, and we talked with someone, I don't want to go back over everything we did last week, uh, but I do think it's important to just to briefly mention for just a few minutes things we talked about last week as a basis. This idea that um, uh, there is a difference between the born and the unborn, that there is a fetus and then there is a baby, and we can treat those two differently is simply not a biblical idea, at least at its root. And it's certainly from the standpoint of the Christian is something that you should be aware of, that the Bible does not treat those two things differently. And this is one of the disagreements that I would have with uh, those who support abortion for the most part. And I certainly am not one that wouldn't say politically that we might have to have some abortions uh, in society. I understand that, and that needs to be discussed. For example, just briefly, for example, there are I don't really think it falls under the category of abortion. Doctors don't consider it such, but activists do. And that is ectopic pregnancies, where the actual embryo does not implant in the womb. That's a fatal condition to a woman and to the baby. And it has to be addressed medically. That generally doesn't fall medically under the category of abortions, and yet activists say that it is an abortion. And it, technically it is. It's the removal of a live embryo, but it cannot survive. It will kill both people. So I have no problem with that. Uh, and so forth. Now, the, the thornier issues are what about pregnancies where there is rape or where there is incest? And I think society has to discuss those. Each state's going to come up with its own laws about that, and that might differ. Personally, I'm becoming more and more, uh, of a position, and I probably have changed on this in the last 30, 40 years, that, um, those should be, those should be adoptions rather than abortions. And I can show you why. Now, now, do I think that all political entities should enforce my view on that? No, I don't. I understand that that's probably, there's more, much more reasonable understanding of something that's been forced onto someone. But to say that pregnancy was forced on you because you had sex with your boyfriend, and now you're going to be forced to deliver a baby, is a complete misuse of language. It's a misuse of ideas. No one is forcing you to have a baby any more than anyone forced you to have sex with someone you're not married to. And that goes for the father too. He should be held accountable and responsible to care for a child that he has. And if you father a child by a woman and she puts it to death, you may be, and you, and you for, you pressure her or you abandon her in that situation. I believe you're morally culpable for that before God. Whether the state holds you accountable, I don't care. God will hold you accountable for fathering a child and encouraging the woman to kill it or not supporting her through the, through the caring of that child and taking care of that child through its lifetime. That's your moral responsibility as a man. Now, I don't know what the law is going to do about that, but that's what your, your responsibility is. So it isn't about just harming women, but that, that's, that's all beside the point. The point, this passage I started with last week was the idea of Mary. Here, Mary has been told by God, you're going to conceive. She's conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. And she goes, during that early part of her pregnancy, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist at that time. And uh, her, and when when Mary comes in the room, verse 41, as it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, in the next few verses, it talks about the blessing of the fruit of her womb, which was, of course, uh, Jesus, but also true of of her baby John. And it says, did you not know that as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb? Now that word babe, as we saw here, is an important word because it's the word briefos, which means an infant, unborn, literally, figuratively, a, a child or an infant. So it's used of that unborn in fetus in our terminology today. A clump of cells. That's how that's put, been put since I was a young man dealing with the issue of abortion. That clump of cells in your body leaped in the womb And it was called by the New Testament writer a babe. Now, ironically enough, when you go a little further, as we saw, not leaning on that too much, you will see that, um, hang on, I'm trying to get where I'm going, that the angels came when, when Mary had her child. Later on, Mary has this baby in the city of Bethlehem, the one we know is Jesus, the Savior, that the angels go and announce this to the shepherds. You know this story, right? You're going to hear a lot of it here in the next few months, the story of this baby in the manger, the babe. And here's what it says in verse 12 of Luke chapter 2. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Not only does the text use the same English word, but the truth is that word is the same Greek word as the what, what was in the womb before. So here's the babe in the womb, brephos. Here's the babe in a manger, Brave folks, infant, babe, same exact word. So does the Holy Spirit think that the born and the unborn being are the same? The Holy Spirit thinks they're the same. You've been brainwashed to think there's some big difference between the two. And now that, that even that difference is being washed away, as we'll see in a moment, the difference between born and unborn is being washed away because our legislators and powerful people from the president on down believe that even after a baby's born... They support legislation that on the table after the baby is born, the doctor and her mother can make a decision to kill the infant right there. You don't, you don't know that? That's exactly what has been proposed and is being supported by the highest people in our country. That after the baby is born on the table, the mother gets to decide kill it or not kill it. The Bible says those are the same. Even, even when Jesus they've come in verse 15 I think I got the right reference Luke 18 I hope I think that's correct someone looked that up for me someone's telling me that's not right maybe it's Matthew 18 but I think it's Luke 18 that they also brought infants to him that he might touch them and so forth that word infants guess what word it is the word babe same as the one before birth in the manger and now it's a young child an infant same word. Holy Spirit says it's all the same. I don't know what you may say about that, but it is and then we got this one, where Stephen in Acts seven was that was that reference correct? By the way, was it was it Luke eighteen? Okay, all right, and babes are right. infants. Okay, so here's where Stephen says that Pharaoh made the the Jews expose their babies in verse nineteen. That word babies. Guess what? Same word. So they they. He's condemning this practice of Pharaoh. After the Hebrew women had the babies, they were to take them out and lay them out in the fields or in the river and let the wild animals get them or whatever, so the infants wouldn't be wouldn't survive. And we we talked about this infant exposure as a part of Roman culture and so forth um, back at that time. That. Um, The reasons given that they would, they, this infant exposure was a common practice in ancient cultures, apparently. All across the world, not just Rome and Greece, but also in Egypt, in North America, was a common exposure, uh, that these, and, in fact, until Christian, I re, I wish I'd put this quote up here. It's, even, there's a guy that wrote this almost blasphemous article about abortion. I should have put it on here, but I didn't. And he was going through the history of some of these things, supporting abortion, and he makes the point offhandedly that until Christianity, infant exposure was about 20 to 40% of all births in ancient times. From 20 to 40%, from what we can tell, infants were simply taken out and left to die. Or they would be adopted, place would be put, but when Christianity came along, he says, that all changed and... More babies were born, abortion, and this practice were snuffed out. So he's giving, he's actually, in criticizing Christianity, is actually saying Christians began to save babies. Does it surprise you today that churches are being attacked and burned for opposition for abortion? Doesn't surprise me a bit. Same way in early Christianity. They were the ones who were opposing killing these infants. Pagans always supported that. Pagans today still support it. Okay? They've just switched it, but it allowed, according to the, this is from a historical document, exposure allowed poor people to get rid of extra mouths to feed, especially the mouths of baby girls. Abortion always pushed to death more girls. Oh, it's for the women, really? Well, the ones that survive, but not the rest. But girls always, and especially since we allow people to select the sex of their children by abortion, girls always get put to death more. Remember me telling you in Bible class and you got mad at me that t- testosterone trumps estrogen? Okay, there you go. Here's another case, right? In the, right at the very beginning of life. And I don't say that with joy. I'm, I'm smiling, but that's kind of because people look at me funny. But Children who were imperfect in some way were exposed. That gets a little personal for someone like me. Exposure was used to get rid of children whose paternity was unclear or undesirable. Don't know who the father is, get rid of it. What happens today when we don't know who the father is or we don't like the father, the father's undesirable? Well, what do these young girls who had sex with the renegade in town, what happens to their babies oftentimes? They get aborted. Same problem, same thing. We're so much better than these pagans, aren't we? Roman women employed contraceptives and received abortions as well. Well, and the paterfamilias, that's a fancy word for the head of the family, the father, had the right to get rid of any infant under his power. That's what the Romans believed and practiced. We've simply changed. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Those wicked men running that patriarchy, killing all those babies, just because they didn't want them. What do we got today? Well, we just switch it from paterfamilias to materfamilias, the mother of the child, now gets to choose Whether the child lives or dies. We're no different than the Romans in in essence, morally, in that sense. We just have switched the the, the locus from the father to the mother of the one who gets to go thumbs up or thumbs down. So I laid out my clothes on the bed last night. uh, You know, I picked out a few clothes and and, uh, Judy, oh, I should help you do that. I said, no, all you got to do, honey, is give me the thumbs up or the thumbs down. (laughs) About the tie, does it match? You know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Just like what Roman women about their babies and babies today. Anyway, the the problem in the abortion debate then is I don't know whether I did, did this right. Here's the problem with this old position that we have biblically. As the Bible it says, there's no, there's a continuous line from conception all the way through. Childhood and into adulthood, there's this continuous line that this is the same creature, a baby or an infant, okay? Same word being used all the way through. But the way we do it today, what the pro-choice position is, is that an unborn human that is wanted, that's a baby. An unborn human that is not wanted or unwanted is a fetus. So when you hear people read, when you read things, you will always read this distinction. When you hear people give women who have had abortions give talks on that, and we're going to, I'm going to show you some of this in a moment, they will they will go along and one of them was saying, "Hey, I'm a pro. I've done all these abortions, had all these abortions," and she's lecturing and she says, "I was giving a talk not long ago, and I talked about my baby that I had aborted," and said the other lady corrected me, "Stop! You mean fetus, don't you?" "Oh yes, fetus, not my baby, my fetus." And then she talked about she got to make sure you get the words right. Because if it's wanted, it's a baby. If it's not wanted, it's a fetus. Why is that, you suppose? Because nobody likes to say, I killed my baby. That's why. Who wants to say, I killed my baby? But I killed a fetus. Okay, we're good with that. So a woman's desire, one way or the other, is sufficient to justify her absolute control over whether her unborn child is a human being or disposable object. Now, see, if I put a man's desire, a husband's desire... A father's desire is sufficient to justify his absolute control. We don't get upset about that. Now, if it's a woman's desire, it's okay. And the reasons given is because, well, it's her body. Of course, genetically, once again, emotions trump science. The fetus is not her body. Now, when Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, we did not know this for sure. It would be somewhat reasonable to say that the baby is her body. But what happened from 1973 to the present time is in the 80s we began to understand DNA. And now we know that that infant inside this woman is a separate entity altogether. Has completely different DNA in its entire, every cell of its body is different DNA than the mother who's carrying it. Okay, so then then it got switched to viability. Well, how long can it survive without help outside the womb? Well, that's a good question for some of you people. You're old enough now. How long can you survive without help? Well, that's what, you may laugh, but that's a, that's where we are really. The two positions are simple. Now, I'm going to summarize before I get there in my sermon. Those who believe, well, maybe I can remember to do this later. Let's do it later. It'll be better in a little bit later. I'm going to get it. So the distinction between these two is not biblical and the body doesn't. Your body does not belong to you, especially if you're a Christian. Here's the verse I want you to think about then. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Here's the, world, here's the beginning of the worldview that you need to get a grip on. I know you believe this. You need to get a grip on what it means in this debate from the beginning of the discussion as a Christian. I don't think this verse means much in a political debate, but it's going to color what you think about it and how you respond. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our own image. That's human beings. And so he created man in his own image. Male and female, he made them. There's another whole debate right there. And then he said to them, verse 28, the first command given humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Isn't it funny how that non-controversial passage has become so controversial with the advent of uh, eco-terrorism, radical environmentalism, to fill up the earth and multiply. See, I think this is at the root of a lot of the abortion debate is ecological stuff. That I've been told this since we started having babies uh, 40 some years ago. You're doing a disservice to humanity. You're a sinner. I've been told that by Christians. You're a sinner because you had five children and you're poisoning the earth with your children. Christians told me this, not just people in the world. I got told that for people in the world too. Well, I just think I'm kind of doing what God said right here. I did my part. Well, you can joke about that, but what is your part? You know, is having one child not even reproducing the two of you? Is that filling up the earth? Well, now we can argue about that. I'm not telling many kids to have, but I am saying I do not feel like I did anything wrong because that's simply what God told man from the beginning. See, that's a view of life. That's a view of my nature as a human being made in God's image, under God's control. My wife and her image made under God, made under by God. And then we do what God said to do. We create more human beings. Does God want more humans or less humans in the Bible? More. What does what does worldly culture say? Less. Is it surprising to you that God's will and the common secular culture we live in are at odds with each other? It shouldn't surprise you at all. But that's where we are. did you didn't used to be this way in the United States, but it is that way now around the world. So we can go all the way back at the beginning and get the basis for this is in creation. My opposition to unlimited abortion is in the nature of creation itself and the purposes that God has for man. And as I have to tell you, for me, I'm going to vote that way. I'm going to do everything in line with my biblical presuppositions that I can. I'm going to vote that way. I'm not ashamed to tell you. I'm not telling you how to vote. But I'm not ashamed to tell you. I, to my knowledge, I've never voted for a candidate that's pro-abortion. I don't have any intention of ever doing so. I may sometime either ignorantly or be forced to. So I don't know, but I have no intention of voting for people that are because I believe it's the whole principle of going against the direct will of God and the nature of the world itself. It's against. It's it's contrary to human nature. Does that mean we can't have a rational discussion about? Should there be some abortions under what condition? No, it doesn't mean that. And I, You've heard me say that that can be a reasonable discussion. But the overall idea that a woman has a right to choose to do whatever she wants to with her body, I reject that out of hand. I don't care what subject you're talking about, whether it's sex or abortion, whatever it is, or, or what, what clothes she wears, a woman does not have a right to do whatever she wants to with her body. Nor does a man. Because they're made in the image of God. They belong to him. So this idea of radical personal autonomy, my body, my choice, tempts us to lift ourselves up like God and say, I'm going to do whatever I want to. Then there's this utilitarian ethics. See, if you believe that God, man is made in God's image, then all ethics and morals and everything flows from that. God has a right by creation to tell the people he made how they ought to live, what they should do. Everything flows from that creation. If you do not believe there's a creator, which the leaders of our society do not, then you're free to decide what the basis is. And most politicians today and most people will decide to do what's the most useful. That's where we are. So they look at, I, I look at a, a baby that's born, like myself, that was born with a handicap. And I say, well, you know, it's it's a, it's crippled and ugly. My dad said I was the ugliest thing i ever seen. They brought him in to show me I was, I was a day old, I was a month premature in 1952. He said, you look like a dead rat. He said, you were real long and yet all wrinkled up and wrong color. Everything about you was wrong. Well, that's because I was only six and a half months along and you and never see anything like that. Is he alive? Yeah, it's alive. Okay. They wouldn't even show me to my mother. They didn't want her to get attached to me. Literally, they wouldn't show me to her for days. She finally made such a fuss. They probably brought me from the incubator and showed he's alive and put me back, you know. So she would stop wailing because she couldn't see her baby. My dad said it was the worst thing ever seen. Now a person from the world says, kill it, thumbs down. That one, never, that one will never amount to anything. How can it? Even if it grows up, it's going to have to endure being crippled. And what people will do, they'll have a bad life. A person who believes in God says, yeah, might have problems. For all I know, it's mentally retarded. For all I know, it's going to be deaf, blind, Helen Keller type person personal world says, what good is it? There's no value to its life. Life has to have value. Some economic value, some emotional value. Christians say, life itself is sacred. Life itself is valuable. And so, they go on from there. They endure whatever the costs are to raise that child, to suffer with that child, to teach that child. And then they get somebody like me, you know, in the end. for Whatever that's worth. But you know, Utilitarian ethics. They value it values people based on what they do, the unborn and the infirm are thus especially at risk, and rather than who they are as bearers of the image of God. That's the problem with modern ethics. What good are you when you get old? Put you to death. So what's coming. So what's already here in some ways. Because you're not any good anymore. And we ask, well, what what value does their life have? My mother-in-law sent over there in that nursing home for I don't know how many years. Beautiful, intelligent, good woman from top to bottom. Everything about her was good. Mm-hmm. And she sent over there and withered away, curled up in a ball, on the bed, not able to move, not even able to unclench her hands. They were also bound up with Alzheimer's. They had to keep prying them apart so she wouldn't dig into them. She couldn't feed herself. She didn't know anything. And you look at her and you say, what was there before was so amazing? A talented artist, teacher. Look at that. It was horrible. Heartbreaking. What purpose does her life have? Well, the worldly person says it has no purpose. End it. And they could have any time. told judy and she believed this i said the purpose of her life now one time her purpose was different the purpose of her life now is for god to see what you and i are going to do that's right. going to see what these people around here are going to do about her he's going to find out what we think and what we will do from her that's the purpose of her life she's with god she's there her, she's still in there just can't see it but see that's the difference between the christian worldview." view in a secular worldview, Amen. about the value of life. And so one day it was over. It was over, and that was the end of that. And that's the way we go. But her life had value to the, her last breath. Amen. I don't get to determine that value. God determines that value, not me, because he's the creator. And once again, we can have reasonable debates about when it's time to let go. We can have that reasonable debate and we've had—I've had that debate personally. It's not—it's not just an academic issue with me. Maybe some of you have too. But we can have that debate. But abortion is the flashpoint because it's the tip of the spear of this humanist worldview. It's the tip of the spear. It's the issue that they will live and die with. I call it the sacrament of their orderly religion. It is the sacrament—the one thing you can't do without because it represents ultimately the ultimate human power of life and death. It's the ultimate expression of human power. The one that's next to it, just below it, is to determine what sex and gender I am. What I'm going to do with my body. That's why we talk about circumcision in our Bible class. That's why circumcision was the sign. Because sexuality is the next level of human assertiveness. And now when you say that there's no truth about whether you're born a male or a female, when God said the first thing he says about man, he made them what? Male and female. God put it right at the very forefront, the tip of the spear. And humans know this. The devil knows this. That's who's behind this ungodly movement. And and he knows that that's the tip, and that's why it expresses itself that way. Why sexuality? Why the fight over this, uh, a few people that want to be transsexual? Because it represents to this humanist worldview the ultimate power of human beings over God, over their own lives. Abortion is right there with it homosexuality and transsexuality are right there with it because they represent this attempt to overthrow Judeo-Christian civilization. Man is in control according to them. He's free to use his body as he wants to. And sexuality is the ultimate expression of that. We have to believe that sex can have no consequences. We've been trying, all my lifetime, humans have been trying in this country to come up with the idea that sex has no consequences, should not have any consequences. Abortion is just an expression of that also. Does sex have consequences? has consequences every single time. Whether you want to or not, whether it's forced or not, whether it's voluntary or not, whether it's pleasurable or not, sex always has consequences whether you're married or not. Because God made it that way. He made them male and female and he put it at the center of human beings. God regulates that for man's benefit. He regulates it. We don't like the regulations, but He regulates it for your benefit. But we're deciding we're going to do it the way we want and get rid of the consequences. And it so happens that it's all been turned that one of the ways you get rid of the consequences is to kill stuff. To kill it. I'm a breeder of animals. Chickens, as you know. I breed honeybees too, but it's not quite as personal. When I breed my poultry for show, we have we have a lot of euphemisms too. We call it culling. We have to cull the flock. You raise a bunch of chicks. You look at them, decides which ones are useful to you in your breeding program, which ones improve the stock, which ones don't, which ones are the right color, which ones aren't, which ones are the right size, which ones aren't. And then you cull the ones you don't want. So I might keep 10 chickens out of 100. Sometimes more. Well, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? It's interesting, intellectual. This brings up a big problem. What do I do with what do I do with the ninety? Well, what do I do with the ninety? Well, that's my business. No. Well, I give them away to unsuspecting people <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a known breeder, so these people buy from me because you know, no. And so I, no, I, I give them away to kids or to people unless they're good that I might sell them to you. And some of them are so poor that I simply take them and break their neck and put them in a garbage bag. They're too small and stringy. I tried. Well, for one thing, I'll oh, never mind. I don't like killing them. To eat them, I have to kill them, butcher them, skin them. If I break their neck, I just break their neck in the bag. And I'm such a sissy. I take them by the legs and put them in the bag where I can't see them and break their neck and drop them in the bag. You know, do I like that? I hate that. It's the worst thing that I hate about the hobby that I have. And I try to avoid it at all costs, sometimes too much of a cost. I know guys that sit, the breed I raise, you can tell if they're good or not right out of the incubator. Boom. Their legs are too long or too short from the moment they hatch. And they sit with a bucket of water by the incubator, take them out of the incubator, look up, in the bucket, or over here in the other cage. Throw so them right in the water from the incubator. I tried that. I can't do that. I should do that. I should do that. Now, you're, you're all cringing. What do you think is happening all across the world this very hour Amen. about babies? Amen. Somebody's saying, into the water, over here with the, in the incubator. Here, here. Based on the same kind of criteria. It's useful, it's not useful. Has value, has no value. I feel like God, and I don't like it. Some people like that, though, I guess. So pro-choice is a choice to choose what exactly? We use this euphemism pro-choice. A ch- what choice is it? What, what choice are you making? Well, you're choosing to kill or not to kill. So let's just be blunt about it. And, you know, a lot of a lot of these people are. This magazine, California Medicine, in early on, before Roe, I'm going to read a few little bit here. I know a time it's been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing. Now they're they're positive for abortion here. See the very point I'm making, isn't it? It's necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. It continue. We got to stop it. Hopefully someday it won't continue to be socially abhorrent to kill babies. That's what they're hoping for. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human be- life begins at conception. This is what pro-abortion people said in 1970. Did they hide that from the public for all these years? They did for a lot of you. Oh, life begins where we have all these ideas about medieval ideas, about quickening and ensoulment and all that stuff. When does life begin? At conception. I don't know about a soul and all that. I don't know about that because the Bible doesn't tell me but we know scientifically that life begins at conception. There's no other possible answer. We just don't like to give that answer if we're for abortion because that means we've got to take a life. But she says here, this is what it is. Everyone knows this, and it's continuous, whether intra or extra uterine until death. Life begins at conception, continues until you're curled up in the nursing home in a ball. Or until you kill it. The very considerable semantic gymnastics which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but taking human life would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. Now, the laughable reference to socially impeccable auspices in this article referred to Planned Parenthood. (laughs) So since Planned Parenthood is so socially acceptable, when they say it, it doesn't seem so bad to people. In any case, the article pretty much argues that the old ethic that is life—that life is sacred—has not yet been replaced by a new ethic that is the value of human life is relative. So while you're in the process of changing the ethics, the editors brazenly add that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary. That it really isn't about killing. Here's Judith. Arcane, a feminist writer and abortion supporter. I performed abortions. I've had an abortion. I'm in favor of women having abortions when we choose to do so. But we should never disregard the fact that being pregnant means there is a baby growing inside of a woman, a baby whose life has ended. We ought not to pretend that this is not happening. Now, when she says that, she's saying, I've done it and I'm in favor of it, but don't pretend that it's not a life. Wow. That's, that's cause your I cause you to blink, doesn't it? Should. Julia Black, Hollywood directors of the movie My Feet and some other movies. The idea of dismembering of dismembering a baby and pulling it out in pieces, which is what happens in partial birth and late term abortions. You can look up pictures of this. Has to be done. Can't be delivered otherwise. The debate in Texas a couple years ago was the law whether you should kill the baby before you pull it out in pieces or whether you should leave it alive and pull it out. There was a legal debate. I had the transcripts of the courtroom of this debate, whether the law, and abortion activists were saying, you shouldn't kill it, it just takes longer. Pull it out alive. Other people said, no, you need to kill the baby first. And this is the way they should kill the baby first, before they reach in with the and foretips. Pull, doctor says, I reach in, and you feel the leg, it moves around, you finally get a hold of it, and you pull it out and rip it off, put the leg over you. And he says, I had to put all the pieces in a tray so I know I got them all. So I wasn't just trying to be a ghoul I said we put them we're told we put all the pieces of the baby in a tray and then we look at it all make sure we got the whole baby. When they talk about partial birth abortions and late term abortions folks this is what they're talking about. Pulling out a baby piece by piece pulling it apart with forceps and then laying in the tray making sure you got it all. So you can they can use whatever words they want. Now is there any circumstance where that might be medically necessary? I suppose that's different than saying I get to choose whenever I want to do that. The politicians that many of you vote for support that. Just think about that. But she says at the same time, it's obvious, at the same time, even though it's horrific, it's easy to get caught up in that emotion. Don't get caught up in the emotion. Just realize what we're doing. She's an abortion, and Penny Lane and Abortion Diaries. Salon so Magazine. Most of the abortions in America are about convenience. There it is. Most people, people need to accept abortion for what it is. A valid part of the reproductive spectrum. Here's the reproductive spectrum from being abstinent to giving birth and having a long life. You know, it's, it's part of that spectrum. I want it to be seen as normal. If 1.3 million women in this country have one every year it's got to be normal. How's that for ethics? Is that how you decide what's normal? Everybody does it so it must be normal. That's what these people without a Christian worldview. That's where you're left. That's what you're left with. You're left with what the, the majority of people think is normal or good. Because if if you have ethics, Christian belief, you know that it doesn't matter who says it's right. It's what's right to do. I remember feeling conflicted about the magic of being pregnant. I felt electricity running through my body. Not for a minute though. That I think not think of it as a life. I knew it was a baby. And though the Mary Mary Elizabeth Williams from Salon. This is a really long article here. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over their pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. This is the same thing, she's saying. We need to be, she's an abortion supporter. And at the end of the article, she says, I, I can read the rest I'm not going to. She, well, she does say, I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. She says, yes. The end of the article basically says, the title of the article is, a life worth sacrificing. Her argument in Salon, a big liberal magazine is, yes, admit it, it's a life, but it's a life worth sacrificing, the babies is. That's her reasoning. Now this is where second wave feminists and third wave feminists are on this matter. A little different than in 1969 but it's where they are so she skewers the pro-choice evasion the fetus is a human life she asserts every fetus wanted or unwanted by its mother planned or unplanned as a pregnancy she even affirms that life begins at conception but she quickly argues the fact that the unborn child is a human life does not mean that it should not be aborted all life is not equal she says That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about unless we wind up looking like death panel-loving kill-your-grandma-and-your-precious-baby-stormtroopers. Yep, that's right. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in the body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what's right for her circumstances and her health health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. Even going to talk about this powerful conflict between the natural love for a woman of a parent for her developing child and so forth our time is gone but I, I do want to mention this verse in Romans chapter 1 it's not on my list of scriptures here in Romans chapter 1 the Bible. one of the things the Bible condemned about the Gentile nations was they had no natural affection no natural affection if you look it up in the Greek dictionary, it's Storge. It is family love. And if you read it, this is long before an abortion debate. It's the natural love of a parent for a child or a brother for a sister. And he said the Gentiles had lost that natural affection. I think to some degree that's true in this debate. Not always, because if you have the baby and you want it, then you can have affection for it. But I want to go here to this passage. I wanted to read all of it, but for sake of time, I'm not going to. I'm going to skip a a lot of it here in Psalm 139. O Lord, David says, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. This is the natural human relationship to God. You comprehend my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. But there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you knew it altogether. He talks about the knowledge that God has. It's far above human beings. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. You know, I think about, when I read that verse, I think about these astronauts. NASA built on atheistic principles of human domination of the universe. And you flip, get these astronauts up in there orbiting the earth, and you know what they do? <laughs> you know what they've done more than once? They pull out their Bible and read Bible verses. They're so transfixed by the beauty that they see and the, all the universe that they open up a Bible and I even saw one in, in a museum that was in outer space. Where can you go from God? If I go to the heavens, can I get away from you? No, you can't. You think you can, you people. You think you can build a tower up to heaven. You can be God, but you can't. And he said, if I go down to the bottom of the, bottom of the sea, you'll be there. And so we can't escape and what you see and what I see in these the right things I just read to you I get angry about it a little bit you can see that it's pat I get passionate about it what I really feel is a pity that these people try so hard to hide what God built into them a love for their own child and their own things that happened and they can't and I feel grief for women that have been pushed into abortions by uncaring men or parents. And they have to live with that grief the rest of their life. You think you can get away from it. It's going to end the problem. doesn't end the problem. There's way too much testimony that this kind of thing doesn't end. And I have counseled people personally against that very thing for that reason. But I have I hurt for those people that will carry that burden because... You can't get away from who God made you to be. You can try, but you won't ever escape it. You can blunt it. You can you can, uh, as the song says, is it is it? Uh, it's not Led Zeppelin. When your conscience hits, you knock it back with pills. Yeah, maybe it is Led Zeppelin. Live and love, and I'm he's, she's just a woman. When your conscience hits, you knock it back with pills. That says a lot about our modern society, doesn't it? Written about 1970. There you go. And, there, and that's where we are because you can't get away from God. He says here, and he, he says here, you form my inward parts, my body inside of me. I can't see. You cover me in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame, my, my skeleton, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. They knew back then what was being made inside their mother, these women. They knew what was being made inside their wife was a human being. And he says, God knew it then. Can we separate this from God? This pregnancy? No. And we may dread it, but God says, this is what I made it to be. He goes on to say, your eye saw my substance being yet unformed. That's the Hebrew word for embryo. Did you know that? This word, unformed? It's the Hebrew word for embryo. You saw my substance, my embryo, my yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned. God God knows this person, knows their life. He knows what he intends for them to be. When as yet they were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great are some of them. If I could count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. See, he's contrasting these thoughts about God and God's care for him with the wicked who don't care about God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you, we wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not, do I, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety, and to see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, we're going to stop our sermon there. I thank you very much for your attention. We can meditate a long time upon that song. But this sets out, if you think about the two things, it sets out two ways of looking at the world that psalm does. And it starts at the beginning of life and goes through to the end and says that what I want to get across to you today, not a political point, but a point about how you view you and the world, young children, and whatever may happen to you, whether you have children someday and children you meet, whether you have the right view of who they are and hold God sacred in your heart. The thing that God made, hold it in your heart is sacred. And do everything you can to have the right view toward all those people around you. We're going to stop our sermon now and we're going to offer an invitation. Number 125, I think it's up there. Do you know my Jesus? And if we can help you this morning by baptizing you into Christ, let us help you to do that. You come to the Lord and He will wash away whatever you've done, whatever burden you carry, He can help you with that. If this morning you need to repent of wrong, you need to do that. If you've had an abortion, can the sin of abortion be forgiven? Of course it can. Does it make you the worst person to ever live if have had an abortion? No, it doesn't. That's not what I'm saying. But it can be forgiven. It needs to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. and go forward and, and live a different kind of life. If you've encouraged people that you you've know to have abortions, and you're the father of aborted children, you need to make that right too. I'm not just talking about women here. Because we need God's view. But perhaps we can help you this morning. If we can, you come right down to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.